0: I'm Shannon Green, and you're listening to On Extremism, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the causes, manifestations, and responses to one of the most important issues of our time. In this series, we'll talk to top experts, policymakers, and practitioners to understand how we can better counter violent extremism around the world. Our podcast is made possible by the CSIS Commission on Countering Violent Extremism, chaired by former British Prime Minister Tony Blair and former U.S. Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta. For more information on the commission, please visit www. Dot csis.org. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Fatima Akilu, an expert in countering violent extremism and partner of the Women's Alliance for Security Leadership, or WASL. A psychologist, Dr. Kilu has worked extensively with the Nigerian government to develop a comprehensive de-radicalization program aimed at former members of Boko Haram. A multifaceted approach providing workforce training, psychological counseling, faith-based interventions, and food and health care, this program aims to rehabilitate former extremists and to diffuse alternative counter-extremist narratives. Dr. Akilu, thank you for joining us today and welcome to On Extremism. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, so one thing I find so fascinating about your background and your experience is that you do come from the psychological background. How has that informed your approach or the way that you think about countering violent extremism?
1: Well, it's actually a good fit because I had worked uh, as a forensic psychologist and worked in prisons with uh, duly diagnosed uh, clients who had mental illness, mental retardation and uh, violent histories. So it was really a good training ground for dealing with extremists who have a slightly different problem, but uh, there was a lot of similarities. Uh, When I worked in forensic psychology, I was working with sex offenders And a lot of it is in the brain, it's very cognitive, and uh, it's similar with ideologically driven terrorists, where you have to engage them on a very cognitive level.
0: Mm. So tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing in Nigeria, particularly research and intervention um, with people who have joined Boko Haram and also people who have left the group or who have been sort of released from, from being captured. Yeah, sure. I think when we started, the first thing that we tried to do
1: was really understand what were the reasons that so many people joined Boko Haram uh, in particular. And later we started to look at the reasons that uh, some Nigerians joined uh, Islamic State. And uh, we found a huge range of reasons. Uh, uh, Some were personal, some were psychological, some were social, some were economic. And uh, to address uh, violent extremism and radicalization, you have to attack it at multiple fronts. Uh, when people have uh, psychological reasons for joining, there's often not the only reason. It's one of many, so it could uh, be psychological, but also social, it could also be economic. So it's very challenging. So, And when we started doing this work, we didn't have a whole cadre of professionals who understood this area and who had the experience, including myself. I had to learn everything from scratch. Uh, We spent about a year uh, really just training uh, the professionals that we wanted to do this work. And then we had to engage a lot of imams to understand uh, how people become radicalized using aspects of the Quran. Because initially when uh, people began to uh, join Boko Haram, the communities thought that it, was, um, that it was something to do with Islam. Uh, yet, uh, when we started to engage the imams and we started to work with the terrorists themselves, we understood very quickly that a lot of them had very poor knowledge of Islam. Some of the higher-level commanders had a lot of uh, Islamic knowledge, but they used different parts of the Quran to, uh, as recruitment tools. So Islam was the best recruitment tool for them because once they came at these young people with this powerful message and said, is the word of God, a lot of the young people didn't have the critical thinking skills and the ability to reason logically that way they could say, well, actually, hang on a minute. So that was also a failure of the education system uh, where you don't teach children to have a wider uh, set of tools to resist and um, that also led us to intervene in um, trying to push education as a national security priority. And eventually uh, the office did adopt uh, education and we started to develop what we call a creative curriculum that not only looked at critical thinking, uh, logical reasoning, but we also looked at imaginative thinking. Uh, we, we felt that uh, if children had were able to imagine and uh, a dream, that it would itself pr- provide a buffer to extremism so that they were not—what uh, the terrorists were offering them was a singular dream. And a lot of them didn't have their own dreams. So that replaced—they uh, did a lot of the thinking for them.
0: And you've studied the different reasons why girls versus boys have joined Boko Haram. What have you seen as the commonalities, but also the the, the distinct reasons why each gender is sort of attracted to the group? Uh,
1: what we're finding now, I'm just beginning to work with uh, women and girls now uh, that have joined Boko Haram. Uh, we found that uh, a lot of the reasons that uh, women join are, uh, to do with uh, economic uh, empowerment, to do with status. Uh, Boko Haram offers them a lot of power. Uh, One of the things that uh, they're telling us is that you can divorce your husband uh, if you're within the group. That is not afforded to a lot of women in society. So um, uh, a lot of the women don't do anything. They have slaves to do a lot of the work. So you have these young women who come from very poor backgrounds usually and in communities that are very patriarchal and all of a sudden this woman has a powerful voice and can make decisions and can command a lot of other women within the enclave that they live so that's really an attraction for a lot of these young girls but a lot of the Boko Haram fighters when they came into these communities they came with a lot of money so that was very enticing (laughs) for the girls they came with gifts Uh, Whereas uh, young boys joined for very different reasons. There's a lot that joined, especially the foot soldiers, because Boko Haram used to offer them uh, small grants and uh, abilities to have small scale enterprises like uh, nail cutting, shoe shining, things like that. But a lot also joined because the message seemed to resonate. Uh, They went to these mosques and they heard these charismatic preachers and they spoke to them. Uh, some had very poor understanding of religion and truly believed that that's what the religion required of them. So that there were a variety of reasons that boys uh, and young men joined, probably far more complex than the reasons that uh, young women joined.
0: And I asked you this before, but what is it about an adolescent's brain that makes them more prone to take risks or more prone to search for these outlets? or to search for a purpose or a meaning in life. Is there something unique about where they are in their stage of life that makes them more vulnerable to extremist recruitment tactics? Well, I think that uh, anybody who has dealt with an
1: adolescent knows that it's, <laughs> it's a very trying time uh, when the brain is uh, moving from a childhood into adulthood. So there's a cross section and it's a very confusing time. Uh, that intersection between puberty and uh, leaving behind uh, childhood innocent safety and trying to find your way as a grown-up person. So that comes with a lot of anxiety for a lot of young people. Uh, it's a time where people are searching for meaning. I think most young people go through that at one point or the other. and. Uh, And it's very important that as a state and as a society, and as communities, that we understand this and we find spaces for our youth where they can find meaning, find belonging, find a space where they can uh, identify and anchor themselves so that they feel that they are something or someone or are able to accomplish something no matter what. And a lot of societies are pretty good at providing a sense of service, um, sports, uh, arts, uh, music. These are all alternative routes for youth as well as a traditional education route. Uh, and when, you, they, when pe- young people are searching for that meaning and they don't find it, uh, this is the time when people used to join communist movements. And uh, so it's that time when you're searching for an alternative. The world has become much smaller. Young people now don't see a variety of systems that they can join or belong to. I mean, we're becoming the same everywhere. And for a young person looking for an alternative, uh, these terrorists have been very good at providing an alternative worldview. And also what they're saying to young people is, look, you don't have to accept the world as it is. You can join us and we can make our own world.
0: And what have you seen in terms of effective strategies to create those alternative routes based on your community level experience and engagement?
1: Well, uh, a lot of the strategies have been there for decades, but most uh, uh, tend to be quite small scale. A lot of them can't go up to scale, which is a problem, but people that uh, there's an intersection between people working in the development world, people working in the peace world, who have been doing activities at community levels for decades you have a whole tradition of ymcas um, that's global now <laughs> you have the girl guides you have the boy scouts so they are these um, activities for youth but i think in communities from that i work in now these youths don't have access to a lot of these kinds of programs uh, if you notice it uh, now volunteerism is going down And that's another area that you can find meaning in in giving back. So a lot of youth don't have that. Uh, Youth today are very impatient. Uh, They cannot wait. Uh, Everything has to be instant. It's the world that they grow up in. So even change has to be answers and solutions. They want it to be instant. They don't want to wait. And we haven't caught up with really uh, understanding what kind of programs as suitable for today's youth, as opposed to what programs existed when we were youth.
0: I think that's a really important point. So I was actually hoping to draw that point out a little bit more, which is when you think about the next decade, or maybe 15 years, how do you think that this threat is going to evolve? But also, how do you think extremist groups tactics are going to evolve in terms of the way that they try to allure young people, or lure young people in um, and recruit them into their cause. Social media, for example, has played a huge role in ISIS's recruitment strategy. Based on what you're seeing and hearing on the ground, do you see changes in the way that extremist groups are recruiting? Uh,
1: Well, what we see now is, uh, initially they had this project, that really gained uh, a big, uh, a big ground with uh, Islamic State being able to seize territory where they could say to people, "Actually, come over, and we're going to do this nation-building experiment. And if you're a doctor, if you're a teacher, if you want to fight, uh, we have room for everybody." Well, that model is is slowly waning because they they've been under tremendous pressure. But what they're saying to people is that you can now uh, conduct activities that support our project from wherever you are which is much more dangerous because people now it's for law enforcement it's a nightmare because people are within their bedrooms on their computers uh, planning and plotting and it's very hard to detect that it's a lot easier to track people who physically travel to a distant location to join a group but if you're cooking up uh, a little bomb in your private kitchen uh, and you live alone, it's very, very difficult. So, And uh, sometimes we say the communities are not doing enough, but the truth is these lone uh, actors, it's very, very difficult because very often the community doesn't know, doesn't have a clue that they're, that they're plotting and, and engaging because they're doing it in a very insular, private kind of way. So I think we're gonna see more of that, unfortunately. Mm.
0: I was hoping we could switch gears for just a minute to talk about the work that you've been doing with fighters who have been coming out of Boko Haram or women and girls who have been um, kidnapped and held by Boko Haram that are now being released. What What, is, what does that work um, look like? What is the experience when you're working with somebody who has really suffered um, and seen some terrible things? Like, How do you engage with them so that they're sort of fit to be integrated back into society?
1: Well, it's very difficult because, I mean, the first stage of it is really uh, trust building, and that takes a long time. Uh, A lot of the women and girls that are coming out of uh, enclaves that have been held by Boko Haram have been held uh, from between about four years to a couple of months to a couple of weeks. And uh, in that time, the majority have suffered uh, from sexual violence. A lot are pregnant or have given birth. So they've, they've been victimized by Boko Haram. They've come back into communities that are uh, rejecting them. So they are double victims. And uh, they, they, there's a lot of concern for the children A lot of the women want to keep the children, but their communities do not want to accept those children. So they don't know what the future would be for these children. I mean, people have outrightly called them uh, haram, Boko Haram, and have said in very strong terms that they would not accept uh, a lot of these women. So what that means is that um, only part of the work has to do with uh, addressing the trauma needs of the women, as important is working with the communities, because we don't want to form another community of uh, young girls who have gone through this kind of victimization, because that's almost like get a rise in them. So uh, we now are looking for ways to work with communities, uh, working with imams and priests and local and traditional rulers to work with communities to sensitize them to what these women have been through.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's almost like creating another cycle of violence by ostracizing both the girls and the children that they're bringing back into their communities. And uh, the fear is
1: what would happen to these young children in two decades if they're not successfully reintegrated back into communities.
0: So I was hoping before we closed to learn a little bit about the partnerships that you've been able to forge with the Nigerian government, with other organizations like ICANN. What has been the most helpful thing to you in terms of internal and external partnerships? Uh, currently, uh, we are partnering with the
1: state government uh, in the program to de-radicalize Haram wives and children. Uh, the state brings really uh, for us it brings a lot of access because it means that a partnership with the state means that we can also uh, open up channels with the military who are the first point of rescue and in terms of working with them to uh, rather than um, hold these women to hand them over much quicker to civilian authority and the military uh, have said that if there was a program they would be willing to hand them over, but there hadn't been a program in the past. So that's uh, so that's one of the things that has been very helpful. And also, it's important to work with the government because uh, as a small NGO, you don't have the ability to scale. When you're uh, looking at potentially thousands of Boko Haram wives and children... I don't think there's any NGO that can handle a group like that, so it's very important to partner with uh, the military. In terms of our external partnerships, um, in term, uh, it really helps us in terms of getting our voice out there, getting people to know what we're doing. But most importantly for me is the connections with other groups that are doing similar work so that we can learn, we can share resources, because I've always said there's no point in reinventing the wheel. If somebody else is doing it, all I need to do is learn from them and uh, try and copy and and replicate some of the things that they're doing. So that's been very useful.
0: And I'm curious on the partnerships that you have with the state government um, and by extension the military, whether there are also downsides to that kind of engagement because one often hears about credibility being the most important factor. So as a community group, does it give you more credibility to have that kind of partnership and support from the government, or does it sometimes come with costs? Uh, At the moment, uh,
1: the partnership with the state government is only for the women and uh, the wives and children of Boko Haram. Uh, The work that we do with the women who have suffered uh, sexual violence, we don't have, we're not working with the state government. That's purely through our own NGO. So uh, we have had experiences in the past where we've had problems with credibility because we came from government. That was when I was working with the federal government. And we had to work really, really hard to gain the trust of a lot of NGOs. And one of the things that we ended up doing was to set up the PAVE Network, it's Partnership Against Violent Extremism. This is a group of civil society uh, activists and NGOs who we partnered with to form this network. So it ended up being the first uh, civil society, NGO, and security sector network in Nigeria. And that took about a year to to convince them to come on board. And uh, I think they've just had their second General Assembly. So uh, it's still working pretty well.
0: And a lot of the conversations I've had, both on the podcast, but also more broadly through the CVE Commission, this is the issue that keeps coming up. It's about trust. And it's about long-term relationship building. And that applies whether it be community groups working at the grassroots level or the US government's relationship with Silicon Valley, for example. This issue of trust seems to be really central to the effectiveness of CVE programs. I don't think you can do
1: you can work in the CVE space without uh, building trust. Uh, I don't think that any one partner can do it alone. The government needs civil society. Civil society needs the government. It's got to be part of a holistic program because we just cannot achieve the effect that we need to prevent this becoming an intergenerational conflict if we don't find a way to trust each other and to work together.
0: I want to thank you for the terrific work that you're doing in Nigeria, oftentimes under really difficult conditions. So thank you again for being here.